From Chicago, this is Around Comics. I'm Christopher Neesman, and this is a special edition episode. It is my conversation with comics creator Gene Ha. You're listening to Around Comics. And we are joined by Mr. Gene Ha. Gene, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. So uh, it's been a nice day. I just cleaned out my uh, Copic markers by uh, <laughs> using rubbing alcohol, 91% rubbing alcohol, to clean the outside of them and the caps and stuff like that so they seal better. But um, because I'm using a spray bottle, I think I might be just a little bit drunk from breathing that in. So <laughs> that that's is my alternative. That is, the, that is the nerdiest comic book artist <laughs> intro Ever. So it's a beautiful day. I've been cleaning my copy markers. Yeah, I'm high as a kite. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, um, you know, I wanted to I wanted to kind of jump off here. We we met uh, each other in Chicago. You are you are Chicago and born and bred, but I started uh, reading about you on the on the interwebs a little bit, and I did not know that you spent um, was it really kind of your your formative and 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 like high school years in South Bend, Indiana. Oh yeah. How did yeah. how did that happen? And tell me a little bit about and and I, I say this because my in laws live in South Bend, so I'm there like two or three times a year. So yeah, I want to know a little bit about life growing up in in South Bend, Indiana, for Gene Ha. Uh I grew up. Uh, yeah, I grew up in the '70s and '80s inside of South Bend. I was I was born in Chicago. My dad was a recently uh, was a doctor from uh, South Korea came here because there was a doctor shortage in chicago Mm -hmm. uh and then later uh established practice with some other doctors uh american-born doctors in south bend and that's where i grew up so um yeah it was just a incredibly boring (laughs) rust belt you know rust belt town that the car factories had all closed a little before i was born yeah so yeah it's just uh i don't know it's just i was also um at the time in the 70s and 80s it was demographically the american average like uh yes. racial composition was pretty close mm-hmm. to it uh economic divide and stuff like that so it was a place where people would like send free samples in the mail to just random houses to test market things because south bend indiana very average now growing up in in south bend you know i imagine you were a comic book fan is i'm guessing at a at a pretty early age um uh, did you have you know comic shops or were you you know the was it still kind of the um the convenience store comic book shopping that kind of stuff um i grew well okay so i started off as a comic book fan in the 70s and it was just uh pretty much uh convenience stores mm-hmm. drug stores i mean uh Hooks, off the racks, yeah. yeah. Spinner yeah, racks. Drugstore spinner rack was my main source for comic books as a little kid. Uh, it was a way to shut us up when we were being noisy or something like that. Um, and it wasn't until uh, the mid-80s that uh, the first direct market comic shop started opening up mm-hmm. on the really bad parts of town near the abandoned factories and near <laughs> the strip clubs. <laughs> it was really amazing. Comic book drug dens and strip clubs. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. The first comic shop owner I remember was uh, he. He looked like a friendlier version of Angar the Screamer. If you've read the Marvel Handbook, <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, uh, hippie, skinny hippie with long ponytail, scraggly mm-hmm. beard. Uh, shop. I don't think he had cats, but somehow it still kind of smelled like cat cat piss. So, and it was like two shops down from. Uh, I think it was called the Peach Pit or and the Tender Trap, and there were a bunch of strip clubs nearby, which was really amusing for my mom. And also, um, uh, the Homeless Mission. Wow, you had like yeah, the, it, was, it was like the trifecta. Yeah, it was the worst. Well, I shouldn't say the worst part of town, but it was a pretty bad part of town. Mm-hmm. What um, you know? What was the the stuff that you kind of remember? You know, it's it's talking to talking to comic book fans that are about you know the same age it's always kind of interesting to to hear what stuff they remember loving and reading and stuff especially from the art side what was the stuff that that you can look back on and say yeah that is really what inspired me to to pick up a a a, a pencil and and a and a notepad oh man um the first biggest one was uh Mike Grell, and I've said hi to him a few mm-hmm. times. Um, and his Green Lantern run and his uh, Legion of Superheroes run okay. were just fantastic to me. He was very expressive. Uh, also, Gene Colan at the same time. They were two Ugh. really super expressive '70s artists at the time. Um, they just their stuff just jumped out at me in a way other artists didn't. So um, you're what reading like Tomb of Dracula? Would that have been about the? Oh, no, it was actually. Daredevil. It was his Daredevil. It was work. Daredevil. Well, that's his like '60s stuff. So you were going back even at or, that point. But he was still doing some stuff in the '70s. In was the, he? Okay. Yeah. And uh, the funny thing is that I remember the issue where they uh, new artist took over, and I thought, "Oh, this is crap. I do not like this artist at all. <laughs> this Frank Miller guy is going nowhere." Oh, hilarious! <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And he was not Frank Miller yet. But no, uh, it's. Yeah. Uh, I, Years later, I totally forgot about that, and I saw the Frank Miller stuff. I was like, who the hell is this guy? He's brilliant. That's funny because um, yeah. you you pick up the uh, the now the 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 omnibus of the Frank Miller Daredevil stuff, and he came in as as the artist, and I forget who was writing, but he didn't start he didn't start doing writing and art duties for for several issues, and. You know, I remember going back and and reading that stuff, and and really, whenever he started writing, that's when that book became like next level. And I still, that's one of the that's one of the few books from that era that I go back almost annually, and I'll read Frank Miller's Daredevil run, and it for for whatever reason, I think it still holds up really well. Oh, yeah. Though I should note, uh, I can't remember the writer's name now because at the time I didn't pay attention to writers, but the Gene Colan run mm-hmm. could often be incredibly dark and complex. Uh, and I remember one issue where uh, Daredevil went insane, rambled in kind of almost, he looked drunk or something like that, just rambled into the Avengers mansion <laughs> where uh, the team members at the time were Black Widow, Hercules, the Beast, uh, and Captain America, and he just kicked everybody's ass somehow. <laughs> and then he screamed, I'm in pain, or something like that, and then collapsed on the ground. They had to take him to an emergency room. And I had never read a dark, dark comic book before. Or it, you know, It was and, wild. You look back at that era, and it was like the low-selling titles that they had, yeah. like even like X-Men at the time, which was, which was kind of a sales dog. They took a lot of chances, and they got dark in some of that stuff. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, uh, the... The Frank Miller run when he took over from that it was the same writer, and he had, he kind of took on a lot of the tricks from Gene Colan for that kind of dark, moody feel, but I just didn't like how he handled it at first. I thought he was just kind of a bad Gene. Col- I mean, a lot of people I love, I think they're 
hacks who are copying somebody else, and then they <laughs> get their own voice. And I later rediscover them and think, I've never noticed this person before. He's brilliant. Who is this uh, David Matthew Kelly guy? Oh, wait a minute. He's the guy I didn't like a few years ago. Oh, uh-huh. no. Yeah, he, he ended up being okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. He did. He did all right. So yeah, we're, I mean, so so Colin was a bit. I you know I can kind of see the the Gene Colin influence a little bit. You know, I look at I look at your art and it's it's evolved a lot. You know, kind of well as it should. I mean, you've been doing this for professionally for twenty something years now. Is it um, twenty? God, it's more than that. When did when did <laughs> your mid nineties? I started in nineteen ninety two. Wow. Uh, okay. And the first com- I started off in the spring of 1992, uh, and then uh, my first comic book came out uh, in December of 92. But it was dated for I think January, February '93 because they have the weird dating system they had back then. You are, I mean, you are getting close to that grizzled veteran status. You're right. Uh, I, 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 no, no, I am not close. I am over the line. Man. <laughs> <laughs> what was your What was your first published work? Uh oh uh it was Green Lantern number thirty six. Uh okay. That's so, hilarious. You know, t- that, that that I mean that that shows you right there. It's like nobody comes into the industry <laughs> right now and says, "Oh, what's the first book?" Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, they're gonna throw me on Green Lantern. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, well yeah, there, <laughs> there wasn't the giant online market of artists and stuff like that. Yeah. But uh, just just as an example, uh, Tim Seeley first met me when he was a teenage fanboy coming to Chicago comic conventions <laughs> and I would make free sketches for him. If he did uh, stunts and stuff like that and challenges like singing, uh, singing stupid superhero theme songs or something like that at the top of his lungs, which he did. Yeah. And now he's, <laughs> he's, he's on the verge of becoming a grizzled vet- veteran. Now I am. Oh, Sealy Seely is completely a grizzled veteran. Yeah. And I am, yeah, I am that many years older than him. You're one of those artists that, you know, I think that you can remember meeting meeting artists that you really looked up to, you know, oh, earlier yeah. in your career. And it's like yeah. and you are that guy now for a lot of for a lot of artists uh, aspiring or even really, you know, established, um, you know, so that's is there was there ever a sense of like, you know, passing of torch to say, hey, you know what, I'm 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 one of those people. I have advice and and information to pass on to these to this new group of of creators. Was there ever a moment that that crystallized that that was something that 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 you should or could do? I I guess I don't try to look for things to kind of like elevate myself, but I do have moments mm-hmm. where I can pass on a small bit of. I mean, there's just constant things where you just talk, you chat with anybody who's either either older than you or younger than you or even your heroes. And you'll often end up with situations where you'll be trading advice with each other. And it's, uh, I mean, oh, God. But, yeah, I guess another thing, it's important thing is that I, the thing I find most annoying in the world are people who are constantly fighting to climb up a hierarchy and get, get one up on status. Sure. I, I try never to do that. You've always um, you've always struck me as being very very humble that way. Um, well, do I mean, do you it's find not, now? Not even humble. I just don't even. It's not even a, a goal of mine. I sure. just don't see the. I don't see the point. It seems like a lot of bother to be an ass. Uh, you know, to be a jerk. <laughs> to kind of you know, to feel like you're you know at, at least I crushed that person. Therefore, I feel better about myself. Sure. You know? I, do you see you know? And you're on social media. You you do you do those things as as creators kind of have to do these days. Um, is social media is it is it something that you enjoy 
as part of your professional life? Is it an annoyance? Is it something that, that you, you know, that you, you're, you're happy to do, or would you, would you prefer for it not to be something to, to, to take up time in your day? Oh man. Oh, I mean, sometimes I feel, sometimes it's kind of a thing where like, like you're going, if you're going to a convention or something, you feel like, Oh, you know, these people are, are, have made me a guest of this show and they're being really nice to me. And I owe it to them to say, I'm going to the show and letting people know I'll be there. And it's, it is kind of work. And it, sometimes it feels like you're tooting your own horn or stuff like that, or, mm-hmm. you know, sure. your, your own book, you are proud of it. You want people to know about it. And it's, I'm trying to promote the work, not me, like any book I've worked on where I'm proud of it. Um, I try to make it about the book and not, you know, not saying, hey, I'm great, therefore love me and buy everything I do. But well, you know. there, yeah, there's a certain there's a certain amount of hype machine that has yeah. to go on out there. It's, you know, especially yeah. <clears throat> especially whenever you're doing creator owned work. And and we can talk about May for, you know, for a little bit here. Um, not only is it a creator owned book, but it, it got its start on Kickstarter, which that that requires a, a lot of hype machine out there and and it's yeah. it's a you know it's an online crowdsourced way of producing a, a comic and anything online i mean the backbone of that is going to be is going to be spreading the the word and 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 getting out on social media what was your initial experience with with kickstarter yeah um well okay i've only done one kickstarter i don't plan on doing it again uh, <laughs> i mean if i get to the point where i do something like uh Oh, uh, speaking of passing on the torch, I am blown away by the work of someone who draws totally different than me and writes different than me, Katie Cook. Oh, uh, she Katie's does, awesome. Uh, nothing, yeah, does nothing special on uh, Line Webtoon. Um, yeah, so if I do, uh, if I do a, ever do a webcomic and then want to sell the collection, I might do a Kickstarter, but otherwise I'm probably okay. not going to do it. Okay. But um, what I learned from the first time is just um, first... And this is true of everything on online social media or, frankly, just dealing with the public, just selling a book at a convention. Try to figure out what the other person wants. And sometimes what they want is not what you're selling. Mm-hmm. So don't worry about it. But just it's I compare it to uh, like sharing something on social media, sharing word of something on social media as uh, someone buying a T-shirt and wearing it. You're going to reach you're going to share a post or, uh, or retweet something. If it says something about you to retweet it, like I believe in this or this is funny and express my mm-hmm. personality, you don't like if someone posts something, if I if an artist posts something beautiful on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, uh, people don't share it because it's beautiful. They share it because it's beautiful to them and it says something about them. Just like wearing a T-shirt, set, you wear a t- don't just wear the most beautiful T-shirt, you wear a T-shirt that says something about who you are. Mm-hmm. Sure. And um, yeah, just if you always keep it outward focused uh, and just focused on what that trying to provide for people, what they need, that's when you get to something true. Um, I guess the other thing is also, uh, okay, here's a bit of advice I always give to artists in any field trying to figure out what they should be doing and what they should be doing next. Um, Think of the piece of art, whether it's a novel or a T-shirt or a comic book, that you wish you could buy, that you can't. When you mm-hmm. figure out the one that you can't buy, that's the thing you need to make, the thing that you desperately would pay almost any amount of money just to own. And even if it doesn't do well, if you do, if you do it with 
all of your skill and all of, and do it the way you believe in, you're at least going to have something that you love and hopefully a decent number of people will love, even if it doesn't go on forever. Is that is that what May is for you? Yeah. And the, if you look at any breakout hit that kind of changed comics or changed any art form, it's always someone doing that. And sure. it, sometimes just, you know, millions of people will realize, oh, I didn't even know this is something I needed, but it's really what I needed because they had that same desire, but they just couldn't define it the way an artist can. I like that. That's um, well. Since we've since we've mentioned May a couple times, um, can you go ahead um, give us the give us a rundown of the book, the the brief history of it, and and what's coming up in the near future here? Okay. Um. So uh, May is a book I launched in Kickstarter, and now it's coming out through uh, Lion Forge Oni Press. It started off in the first two oversized issues worth on Kickstarter, uh, and that was my crazy uh, self promotion. Uh, self-publishing adventure which was so much work um that's another reason i never <laughs> want to do it again because this is a common theme i've heard on kickstarter it's like love doing it boy it's a lot of work yeah you i wanted to nail down every detail and if someone if i missed something or something like that i was going to do what i can uh, the book itself is um it's a combination of a lot of things that I really loved. Like, uh, in a sense, it's fan fiction of Kyle Baker's uh, why, I, uh, why I Hate Saturn, which <laughs> okay. is a relatively realistic non-fantasy story about two sisters. But one of them is probably deluded because she probably isn't, as she claims, the queen of the leather astro girls uh, of Saturn. And then I just began playing with that as kind of a fan fiction in my head uh, early on in my career. And it slowly over time morphed into something else where um, instead of being an astro girl or a space girl, one of the sisters turned into – I put a jacket on one of the sisters and my version of one of the sisters. And I realized, oh, this isn't a space fantasy anymore or a space opera. This is something else. And that slowly morphed into the world that I turned to May. Um, the other thing is that uh, the I thought the astronaut or the – now the um, historical fantasy, uh, fantasy type – character was the the main character of the book and then i realized oh no she actually doesn't have a lot of emotional growth to do or anything like that or dramatic growth to do the more interesting character dramatically is actually the younger sister and then i began building on that and this kind of nerdy younger sister became the main character and i began researching it at the time around 2012 2013 when i began really crystallizing all these ideas and i had trouble finding pop culture nerd girl characters who were the main character uh, mm -hmm, back sure. then yeah back then they were generally the person speaking over the hero's headset saying now you need to turn left here now cut the red wire <laughs> yeah yeah it was it was all the the oracle you know yeah. character and oh yeah the other big trope is uh nerd girls who uh have a boy walk up to them take off their glasses and say oh my god you're beautiful you're not a nerd and the girl's saying Oh, thank God, I'm not a nerd. Oh, mm -hmm. I can be popular finally. I'll never have to nerd again. Thank you. Thank you for noticing. Yeah, and I wanted May to be a hero because she's a nerd, and that—that's her essential character. That's why she's great, not as something that she's trying to fix. To sidetrack a little bit here, and I was going to ask you that, kind of going back to um, you being the the grizzled veteran in the industry that you are now. I mean, that's got to be one of the biggest changes that we've seen in comics is people waving that nerd banner proudly 
you know, and it's, you know, it's been like that for 10, 15 years now that, you know, people are proud of their nerddom. What was, I mean, the difference between going to a, a, a trade show uh, or a comic book convention now versus 25 years ago? I mean, what's it like for you? It's like all my fantasies about what comic books would become mm -hmm. have pretty much come true at this point, where it's just, um, like, I mean, do you ever read, uh, uh, Ryan Hibbs's annual reports on the comic book industry. Sure, yeah, yeah, those okay. are staples forever. Yeah, so uh, for those who don't know, he's the owner of uh, Comics Experience in San Francisco, a great comic shop, uh, one of the savviest retailers in the industry. And if, for the last few years, he's been reporting about how um, the bookstore graphic novel market has been overtaking the direct market in this DC mm -hmm. and Marvel superhero um, graphic novel market by leaps and bounds. And so now Marvel and DC are kind of uh, maybe... A little under a third of the industry and over two-thirds are now uh, companies like Scholastic, uh, Macmillan, um, uh, Paper Cuts, just all these publishers that focus on kids. And the average comic book reader in the United States now is not um, a 40-year-old uh, Asian or white <laughs> middle-aged Rognard like me. Uh -huh. It's uh, boys and girls, uh, teenagers, all races, you know, uh, LGBTQ, just everybody who's young it's every it's like everything that. that we as comic book fans ever wanted to happen and yeah. it shocks me how much resistance there is to that happening oh yeah and yeah it's 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 a bit like the the you know the spies uh you know the cia agents to be like won the cold war and it's kind of like just accept it you've won yeah and they're like oh why can't we go back to the cold war it was so fun yeah. <laughs> i mean it's yeah, this is it's such it's such a beautiful world we're living in right now. And I'm going to say part of the reason it wasn't obvious when I started like really plotting out doing, you know, really committing myself to doing May around 2013 that this is where things were going. But now at this point, it's just gigantic. Just the force of graphic novels in schools and libraries and stuff like that. That's the big place where people are learning about comics. I'm going to say, I mean, I wanted to be part of the change or to help create the change that happened anyway and mm -hmm. i'm going to say the changes have been so big the big titles have been so big i mean it would have happened hugely happened without me and stuff like that it's just it's amazing seeing just this flowering of brilliant new stuff um good lord it's just <laughs> well you know i, I look at, at, at you know at, at team may if you go to to geneha.com yeah. and there's the there's the the team and that's you know first of all that's amazing that i mean it this is your book but you have so many people that are involved in this and and it's it's kind of amazing the group of people that you've put together to to produce this book and it's it's a pretty diverse group of people. Talk a little bit more about uh, about the team that you have working on May. Uh, okay, so there's the core team, which is uh, me, uh, my letterer Xander Cannon, my colorist uh, Wes Westflow Hartman, and out of Texas, uh, and then just been a variety of people who've helped out on it and various things. Uh, yeah, just go to GeneHa.com, click the Team May link, uh, and just oh man, uh, I'm just gonna say like. Uh, Paulina Ganeshow, who's uh, gone on to just become bigger and bigger since she's done my thing. Uh, yeah, she just did. She did chapter six, uh, and the art was totally different than mine, but just brilliant in ways that I can't. I mean, I like bringing people on board who are brilliant, who do things like differently than me, 
and it's not just a style thing. It's just like if you see the world differently, that's where you get mm-hmm. real. That's where real style comes from. I, I um, love. I love that you have Xander is is doing letters. Oh yeah, and I, <laughs> I, yeah, my art is so tight. Both in, uh, I supervise coloring and I do little tweaks here and there on the mm-hmm. coloring to make it look like my style to match. I color the first two issues, therefore I have to tweak the mm-hmm. rest of the chapter so it looks it matches the style but um so my style can be so tight in drawing and coloring that some people assume it's cgi and it's just hand drawn it may be hand drawn on a computer and it's hand colored in photoshop it's all 2d work there's no cgi stuff except for occasionally using 3d stuff for um draw cars but why why you you kind of make that clear on the on the the home page you've got your you've got your 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 breakdown and then your kind of rough sketch um, blue lining, inking, yep. and flats, and then finished colors. And so it, it's for people that that don't know how comics come together visually. It's kind of a really nice visual image to say this is how you build up uh, a, a comic, kind of from you know the the initial layouts all the way to to, to finished work. It was I, I really I, I like that graphic a lot. It's it, it's cool. Um, um, just let me say uh, really quick on Xander is just mm-hmm. that I love how loose uh, Xander's lettering is because it contrasts nicely with the art and just gives mm-hmm. it that kind of I made this for you feel to it. Nice, nice. Well, you've been working with Xander for a long time. You guys, I mean, that, that you got a couple decades of, of collaboration with him at this point, don't you? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we started working together, I think, in uh, – uh, 1998, or maybe it was 1999. Um, yeah. But we'd actually met a few years before then at a random store signing, and uh, he's he's been a great teacher to me. And just that uh, I started off as a penciler and then later penciler inker at DC and Marvel, but I hadn't done anything else in the whole process, like coloring, lettering, writing, and stuff like that. And getting to work on top ten with him because he'd done every job self-publishing uh, replacement God. Mm-hmm. He was able to analyze, uh, do layouts for, and analyze the um, Alan Moore scripts in a way that I couldn't. And he could say, oh, here's what Alan Moore's trying to do with the writing here. Here's why he's describing things in this way and structuring things this way. And it allowed him to do layouts and just see things in the script that I couldn't, which I didn't. It's, it's, it was a bit like the, you know, the one I, I don't know, it's just... He, ta- it, he taught me so much. He's just one of the best teachers I ever had. That's cool. It's, you know, I always, um, um, I've never talked to Alan Moore. I mean, he's my white whale. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I've, you know, it's, I, I've, I've done a lot of like, you know, six degrees of, of Kevin Bacon and talked to a lot of, a lot of artists that have worked with him. I mean, we've got, you know, Hillary uh, Barta right there in, in Chicago as well. You know, Hillary worked uh, on the Splash Brannigan stuff with, with Alan Moore. What, um, what was that experience like? Uh, he is literally the fastest mo- creative mind I've ever met, where um, I can at least kind of keep up and keep pace with every other person I've ever traded ideas with, except Alan Moore. He's just he's just too creative. He's just too smart. <laughs> I can I can and top ten. So we talked uh, about books holding up the the Frank Miller Daredevil run. I was reading top ten last week and it's still awesome and looks looks beautiful. Oh, um, it's uh, you know it's looking at at your art from top ten and then kind of following stuff that you've done um, you know in the in the years subsequent. Um, your your style you know you can always kind of tell a, a Gene Ha 
piece of work, but your style has changed a lot. The path that your that your art has taken over your career and stuff that you've um, either consciously wanted to change or things that kind of happened even without thinking about it. Uh, I mean, the best way to put it is that um, I've always been in love with kind of uh, the beauty of the world around me visually and just the little subtle, just subtle details just strike me as very beautiful. And when I draw them, you can see me just focusing on just like a little upturn or change of the plane in the face or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or um, the way uh, jacket will wrinkle or something like that. I just, these details are incredibly beautiful to me. And I want, I don't want to include every detail in the world, but the ones I do love, I do want to include. And it's hard to do that in harsh black and white because some of them are very subtle. So it's just been this battle between me and the technology of how comics were being being made at any time period uh, so I can get those details in. So uh, I started off trying to do cross-hatching in a very subtle way with very specific values, not making it too harsh when I didn't want it harsh unless I wanted it to. And then the anchors didn't always get it, so therefore I took over the anking. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, forgive me, uh, experienced colorist guys out there, but uh, the 90s were the dark ages of American comic book coloring. Oh, I mean, um, yeah. Well, I mean, there was a lot of technology that, you know, it's like, let's try this Photoshop filter. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And if, if you are a colorist from that time period who survived till now, it's pretty obvious either you got incredibly good or you were one of the brilliant ones back then who used it right. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so there's then me trying to take over a little bit of the coloring as soon as I got myself a copy of Photoshop. And that, it, just, it became so labor-intensive doing this. I began experimenting with other things like uh, using markers to do my old color guides, mm -hmm. uh, doing ink wash on Top 10, the Top 10 prequel, uh, Top 10, the 49ers. Um, on May, I uh, first two chapters, I just colored everything myself because I just thought, I want to get my full vision onto the page. And now I'm going into another experiment, which I can... I'll send you a file after we finish up the interview. Okay. Uh, but it's also um, one of the... Uh, postscript uh, shorts inside of May Volume 2 uh, where I'm using I'm doing a duotone inside of uh, Procreate on iPad and I'm using this to kind of, so that way in the, the medium color, the kind of light brown color I'm using that to do the shading and then I have uh, the black ink stuff for doing the harsh shadows and the outlines and stuff like that and I feel like I'm finally do, found a simple way to get my vision across and that's where I'm going to be going next, trying to see if I can do that with a colorist for full color books and stuff like that, saying use this as like a, uh, I believe in anime they call it cell shading. Mm -hmm. Yeah, use it like a cell shading guide, and then you just have to figure out exactly what to do with the colors and the exact values of it, where I want I put the shadows. And uh, hopefully it all works elegantly, but we, I don't know yet. That's that's neat. You know, I, I look at I look at your work and one of the things I, I loved from from your early work is you had um I guess the the best way to, to say it, you had a very delicate style, um, but there's certainly um that, that feeling there is like an organic like fullness to your art now. It, it, yeah. if that means anything. Oh no, I yeah. yeah um yeah, the, the vision in my head has been pretty consistent throughout my whole 27 years in comics mm -hmm. and it's just yeah trying to figure out new trying to use the latest technologies and techniques to just get it onto the page without break, literally breaking my wrist and not getting you know carpal tunnel and <laughs> breaking every deadline too horrible. Sure. 
it's just yeah it's just uh well, well there, uh, there was the, there was a time whenever um i remember you started doing a lot of marker work and was that just kind of something to to get away from pen and ink or had you always worked in markers because I, I i i remember seeing you at, at a couple at a couple shows where i was like wow he's doing everything in marker at this show and it is stunning uh was that something what was it was it new to you or just something that you that you pulled out of the toolbox Oh, uh, in my art school, uh, the Center for Creative Studies in Detroit, uh, we learned how to do storyboards and marker uh, roughs before. And our, because our school was late getting computers compared to every other art school in the nation. Um, <laughs> so I, it, I was kind of used to it, but I, was, I learned a little bit extra along the way and stuff like that. And I can do things now with marker that I could not do 10 years ago or 20 or 30 years ago. Um, but yeah, it was just a way of getting away from I, at my, I came into the marker phase where I was doing things like uh, the Starman work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As I was leaving behind my super tight cross hatching work, and I was pretty much the second uh, tightest cross hatcher in the industry at the time. Uh, right behind, oh, I can't remember his name right now. Uh, his start, name starts with a G. He's brilliant. But Jeff um, Darrow. Not Jeff Darrow. There's a guy. <laughs> who does, he did uh, oh these beautiful kind of. Uh, um, it looked like Franklin Booth type illustrations. Mm -hmm. But a little tighter than Franklin Booth. Um, but anyway, I was uh, yeah. Essentially, I was getting as tight as the rendering on, say, like a one dollar bill or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And I realized uh, my hands are starting to shake and they're starting <laughs> to hurt. My eyes are hurting and I can't make deadlines doing this style. I need to figure out another way to express the subtle, the subtleties of the figure that I want to get across in the planes of the figure without killing myself this way yeah it's 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 just been interesting to me and it's one of the things that i love about the medium in general is how different artists are are able to you know approach their styles and communicate with with line and yours has has you know from what i've seen um gone from being this very uh deliberate delicate beautiful line but but now in your later work you are um, communicating more with less but it's still it's still obviously gene ha's work yeah well i mean when i talk about um st true style coming from how you see the world though for a while there okay i am convinced that the greatest living uh comics artist is uh bill watterson okay he invented the uh, Sin City style a few years before Frank Miller did. In really? His, uh, tracer. Yeah. Look look at the Tracer bullet strips. The first ones came out. It's the full-fledged Sin City style. But it came out years before Sin City. I will look that up. So you're telling me that that Frank Miller aped Bill Watterson. I, for, I, I have no reason <laughs> to believe that. I have no way of knowing and or even reason for believing that Frank Miller ever read a Calvin and Hobbes strip. So for all I know, he came up with it on his own. But here's the thing. Bill Watterson is just this genius, like an almost curb-level genius. genius. Const he constantly came up with these brilliant ideas. His, um, and I tried aping some of his stylistic stuff. Like his, uh, he did a relatively realistic sup muscular superhero uh, scenes when Calvin was pretending to be a superhero with mm -hmm. rippled muscles and stuff like that. And I thought, oh, these are perfect and beautiful i love this so much and it was the biggest stylistic failure of my life because fundamentally i do not see the way the world the way bill watterson does it doesn't work it always surprises me how many comic book creators don't go back to comics you know comic books and say oh it was you know it was kirby or burn or or whoever there are so many strip fans out there 
um, uh, Chris Somney, Andy Parks, those guys will talk about about uh, comic strips the, the as long as you want. Um, you know, so much, so much inspiration for them came out of, out of comic strips. And it sounds like Calvin Hobbes was a big inspiration for you. Were, were other, were other strips a part of that? The thing is, I mean, there's so many, the people I admired most in, uh, newspaper comic strips tended to be, uh, people who don't see the, who, who's, I, I can't see the world the way they do. So therefore mm-hmm. I can't, I love them. I just can't copy them. Okay. Um, I mean, like, like a big, inf- an odd big influence for me is the uh, Asterix comics by uh, mm-hmm. Guskinian sure. and uh, and Uderzo, um, and they kind, despite being very cartoony, they do kind of see the world the way they do. And if you look at the way they did uh, line and combine it with watercolor, that's not too far off from how I do it inside of May. But then if you get to something like, uh, well, I mean, Darwin Cook, just on a fundamental level, I don't. see see the world graphically the way he does and yeah. i want to throw in the middle range tones and stuff like that and if you uh, actually this is a really good experiment when i will send you this file the files for that two-page uh mm-hmm. s- postscript story from may volume two uh and you can just post it on your website okay compare that to some pages from darwin cook's um oh um uh, parker series uh, yes and it's the same concept of uh, medium colored uh background paper uh, a medium ink on top of that, and then black ink on top of that. Mm-hmm. Which and is brilliant. Effect, yeah, it's same technique, but the effect is completely different because we do not see the world the same way. <laughs> yeah, it's I I love how you look at it that way as 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 framing framing people's art as how they look at the world, and it's uh it's it makes all the sense in the world is is you're putting you're putting your visual world down onto paper oh yeah and one of the most painful things in the world for me to do is to look at the work of an artist who's copying somebody else's style but doesn't understand how that artist sees the world but just has aped the surface line and rendering techniques and stuff like that you know i'm and when it doesn't work it really doesn't work sure Uh, it's it's like when people think that like Oh God! I'm, I'm just going to use a, the example of my favorite hero from the superhero comic book world, Bill Sienkiewicz. He started off mm-hmm. as the second best Neil Adams in the world. <laughs> Back in the Moon Knight days. Yeah. Yeah. And sure. He was he was already brilliant, but it wasn't until he began drawing the way he sees the world that he went from being a talented artist to being a genius. Yeah, he was. And he was. He was like. Um, uh, he was a house style guy almost. Yeah. Yeah. And just, uh, it's his stuff is <laughs> everything he does. I mean, it, you know, there's no way an Alex Ross could cop, could draw, draw the way that Bill Sienkiewicz does. Yeah. I mean, he could copy it and apply it to a, one of his paintings, but in a fundamental level, it would, he, it, it's not the same understanding. It would no, just be a surface no. copy. Well, we've talked about some some of the uh, the greats, and as we get ready to wrap up here uh, in just a couple of minutes, um, any I, I know that you always kind of have your your thumb on the pulse of what's going on. Who are some of the the newer names out there? Uh, and I ask selfishly because I'm always looking for new stuff to check out. Who are some of the people that are exciting you? Um, art, writing, both. Uh, let me just uh, okay. I'm gonna say the uh, the thing that's kind of most blowing me away now is. Uh, Faith Aaron Hicks's evolution, where um, if you look at her early stuff, or even like uh, something relatively recent, like the adventures of Superhero Girl, mm-hmm. uh, 
she was very cartoony, kind of uh, pop pop arty. And then she did something recently where it was influenced by uh, Avatar, the Airbender guy uh, character, called uh, the Nameless City, uh, and it's a kind of an historical fiction set in a fictional version of a Chinese empire. Uh, and it just it just blew me away because just every it's not cartoony anymore. It's not typed, but it's beautifully rendered, uh, epic cityscapes, uh, perfect perfect costume designs where. There's a bunch of it's a multicultural empire, and every culture, subculture, culture and subculture has its own national dress, and the storytelling is just brilliant because she's telling a story about uh, ethnic clashes inside of a multicultural nation or empire, but she's telling it from the viewpoint of teenage kids in this empire. So the main character is the son of a teenage son of a general. And they'll he'll like walk by a room where a big meeting is taking place, or someone's plotting a coup, and he'll like listen in for a second, and the reader will be able to realize, oh boy, yeah, that's something big's about to drop there, and the kids just like, boring old grown ups, and then walk away, and it's like, it's it's a lot like it's the brilliance of the West Wing in a way with their talking walks. Okay. Except one of the talking walkers is a kid who's not paying attention. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then he suddenly realizes he has to pay attention. And it's just, it's one of the best political comic books I've ever read. It's um, a design, uh, just a, a masterpiece of design in every way and storytelling and stuff like that. It's brilliant, brilliant work. I'm, I, it is on the list. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and this is going to sound, uh, I'm going to name two more things. Uh, and they're going to be really obvious, but just in case people haven't heard of them. Uh, one is... I know a lot. I keep on meeting retailers and even a lot of comic pros who have no idea that the biggest selling comic book creator in America by now, now by far, is Raina Telgemeier. Uh, and just if you're out there and you want to understand what the comics market is now, ask your local public librarian who Raina Telgemeier is. And she will, he or she will start gushing. Or if you talk to a middle schooler who likes comics, uh, oh God, yeah, just. She has changed the industry starting in 2007. The reason why things are different now is because she came out with a book called Smile. Okay. It started off as a webcomic, free online. Um, oh, uh, actually, I'm going to name two more things. Uh, one more. <laughs> You're spreading the gospel, James. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love Mike Mayhack's Cleopatra in Space, which is starts off as goofy as it sounds. Of, yes, it is the historical Cleopatra sucked into a far future in space. And going to uh, space cadet school there but it gets deeper and more complex as it goes along uh, oh god uh, I already mentioned Katie Cook's nothing special and finally if you're a fan of top 10 and you love the writing on it I will mention that Alan Moore is a fan of the writing of Xander Cannon mm-hmm. on his book Kaiju Max and it's as powerful and as dark and as hilarious as top 10 if you want that writing uh, you know heroin injection into your arm again he's your dealer that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Gene, go ahead. Give us the uh, uh, the quick wrap-up on May, um, where to get it, when to get it, how to get it, all that good stuff. Volume 1 is already out, and on September 18th at your local comic shop, you can get May Volume 2. If they don't have it in stock, just ask them to order it from Diamond. And if you're a little more patient, uh, it will be available in bookstores on October 1st. And once again, if it's not there, ask them to order your copy from Lionforge. That's awesome. Well, Gene, it is 
always awesome to talk with you. Thank you so much for uh, for sitting in and uh, and and chatting about all things comics. Um, uh, best of luck with May. I can't wait to uh, to go to my local comic shop and pick it up. Ah, I'm excited for you to read it, man. And once again, a huge thank you to Gene Ha for sitting in and talking with us, not just about May, which Volume 2 uh, will be available uh, directly after uh, we release this episode and go back and get May Volume 1 as well. Uh, he talked about those, but also talking about uh, his history in the industry. And as always, if you know Gene, uh, spreading the gospel about all the different uh, creators and different comics out there that he loves. So, uh, so we uh, really enjoyed talking with Gene. This is the first creator interview since we brought Around Comics back. If you enjoyed this, and I hope you did, you can email us at info at aroundcomics.com. You can also uh, check us out on Facebook, leave a comment there when the episode releases. And, uh, and if you like this, you can always request more. So uh, thank you everyone for listening. We'll be back in probably the next week or two with the full cast of characters. In the meantime, in between time, we'll be everywhere in and around comics.